thank you, Lord, for this, this morning and this opportunity to gather together with brothers and sisters, to come before you, to gather around your word, to seek to learn from it, to know you better, to worship you, to praise you, and uh, to have fellowship with one another and with you. I pray that you would give us wisdom this morning as we seek to understand from your word um, more about the nature of man, the nature of sin, and the nature of the wonderful salvation that you've provided. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that you uh, will guide us into all truth. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, the, so today's um, subject is the spread of sin. And over the last few weeks, um, we've looked at uh, various aspects of biblical anthropology, the nature of man as understood in light of scripture, and especially focused around the creation account in Genesis, um, the creation of man and woman, and the way that uh, God designed in his very good plan for, um, for human beings to, to be, what he wanted us to do, and then the fall into sin. And, um, and today, we're, this is really kind of a, a pivot point, or kind of a, a different way of putting it, a zooming out from focusing in on Genesis and now looking out at how, how does sin spread? We saw how it begins. How does this come to affect us? So here's the, if you, if you picked up a handout um, off of the music stand in the back, the, the, the big idea or kind of a, a synopsis here is that we were implicated in Adam's sin. His sin nature is then passed on to us so that we are now all sinful by nature and sinners by our own conduct. And you might call this the bad news, but with this bad news is then the very wonderful good news that Christ, as the second Adam, provides grace and salvation and a righteousness that God imputes to us. So there's, there's a lot here, but this is, we're really going to be focused uh, on... Um, Romans 5 today, around uh, the, which is Paul's great exposition of the first Adam, the second Adam, and how sin has spread and been propagated and imputed, but also then how righteousness has, is made available and imputed to us through Christ, by grace, through faith, and, uh, and that is a very wonderful good news. So, a lot today will be about sin, but with this sin is always then this wonderful flip side of the salvation that God has provided. And so th- you'll see also from the headings, um, there are kind of three big 
areas that, that theologians would um, uh, talk about are three big thematic areas. We have original sin, we have the reach of sin uh, in terms of kind of the extent of who's covered, people, and then we have kind of the, the extent of sin, like how many areas of each person are affected by sin. And so we'll look at these as original sin, universal reach of sin, and then total depravity. Um, so as we start, uh, just kind of curious, I don't know if there are markers around, I forgot to look for this, but I was going to put these on the board, but it doesn't matter. Um, uh, yeah, that's okay. Oh, they're in a drawer. Great. So I was curious, anyone have thoughts when, when we say original sin, what do you think of? Because I think there are a number of, of possible ways that we can go with the idea of original sin. Um, or, yeah, okay. No, that's... It's, it's a permanent marker. If I put it here, it would be kind of like the stain of sin. Uh, very difficult to remove. That's, that's okay. Um, so... Okay, original sin. What do we, what do you think of with original sin when somebody says that? Like, well, let's just throw out a few components of this. Adam Eric. and Eve in the garden. Adam and Eve in the garden. Yes, it's original. It's the very beginning. This is where it all started. It's can, it, so this is we might think of it as the historical event. So that is one piece. Um, Got a historical event here. Evan? I mean, people could argue the rebellion of Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So, bef- the re- so Evan said people could argue it's the rebellion of Satan as the, the very first sin. Where is the origin of sin? Because before Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, Satan is coming in. He's coming there to deceive Eve and then Adam. And so somehow Satan has entered into rebellion against God even before Adam and Eve sinned. So we have the historical event in the garden. We have, um, can think about Satan and Satan's place in this story. Uh, any other, any other? Oh, amazing. Thank you, Zach. Okay, so I'm going to actually put these, a few things here. So we have, but yeah, anyone else? So we've got historical, we have Satan. Any other? Yeah, Justin. And Adam sinned, sin entered the entire human race, so it affects all of humanity. Yeah, so the origin of sin for all of humanity, there's, which is, which is so it's obviously related to the historical point, but it's, um, it's derivative from it, but it is the idea that and if sin is the original condition of our nature, that human nature in a post-fall world is infused with sin, it is, it is just endemic, it is somehow just the default setting in our human, human condition. Um, so, yeah, those are... Um, any other? Yes. Death creation. 
Yeah, so death enters creation. Uh, so with the origin of sin, we also have the origin of death, death as a consequence of sin. Um, one other point that um, has sometimes been talked about, and there are, there's an aspect in which this is true, and this is, there's also one here that um, has been subject of significant distortions in church history, but it's the idea that original sin it relates to the, the history, but it's sort of a pattern. Uh, it's an example or pattern um, that was set by Adam and Eve, and then people have followed ever after. Um, and I'm just gonna, I'm gonna mark this one because there's something here that there's something here that's true, but there's also we're gonna return to this that. Um, one of the heresies of church history then grows out of running with this idea of pattern and nothing more. So, um, so all of these things are aspects that we can think of that are connected to the origin of sin with Adam and Eve. Um, now, the one that, that Jocelyn mentioned, um, the effects on all of humanity, this one right here, is what theologians uh, have talked about as original sin. Um, so if you're you know, looking up original sin in like a systematic theology text, the, the point of emphasis is often on this one right here, which is the idea that original sin, so it is derivative from the historical sin of Adam and Eve, um, and then it comes and affects all of humanity. And then the subject that, in, if you look up a systematic theology book that they end up talking about in depth is, how did the original historical sin then become the original condition, uh, the default setting, if you will, of humanity? And to understand this, uh, I think we should turn to Romans 5. Um, and we want to look at Romans 5, verses 12 through, let's say, verse 19. Um, can I get a volunteer to read uh, from Romans 5? Like it. Yes, thank you. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many die through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, 
works, and one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the for by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Thank you, Micah. Um, yeah, okay, so there's so much in this passage that we could talk about. Um, we could talk about uh, the law and the transgression of Adam and the nature of gifts. And, but today, we're just going to focus on what this passage tells us about the, the transmission of sin and the effect of Adam's sin on us. Um, what are some things that we could observe from this passage about um, the way that Adam's sin affects us? Any, any observations from this text? Feel free to just call out. Um, so we have, we have one trespass, one sin. So we're back here. So that we're looking back at this historical point right here. And then what do we see in verse 18? This one trespass leads to condemnation for all men. So the historical uh, has a very direct effect on us. We're all corrupted by sin, thanks to the sin of Adam. So we see this also, verse 19. By the one man's disobedience, who were made sinners? Yeah, the many, the all men. He keeps using, he uses several synonyms here. He, um, in 18, he says all men, 19, many. This, this is usage as synonyms. There's not uh, a, a difference, I, I think, we look contextually as to what's going on here. Um, he's really talking about the scope of the effects of Adam's sin, that um, through that one historical event, there are these far-reaching events that, uh, and effects that come to all of us. Um, and the, uh, and we see this repeated in a number of places throughout Scripture. Um, we see this in Psalm 51, verse 5. We see this in Genesis 8, 21. We have these references here. Um, could I have someone uh, look up Psalm 51, 5? Uh, and someone else look up Genesis 8. Okay, Justin's got Genesis. Oh, so you've got Psalm? Genesis. You've got Genesis? Does anyone have the Psalm? Awesome. Um, because this is not an isolated point. This is not something that you know Paul is making up out of thin air or some new innovation. This, uh, the extent and the effects of sin, is something that is throughout the scriptures. Um, so, okay, can I have uh, Psalm fifty-one? Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive. Yeah. So this is David, as a psalmist, in this great psalm of repentance. He is recognizing that sin is, it's not just what he did. And if any of you were in the sermon uh, a few weeks ago, um, this was, this, 
And if you, if you weren't there, look it up in the sermon archives, um, which was just preached in, I don't know, about a month ago, um, that David recognized that he had committed a, a terrible, heinous, actual concrete sin, that he had committed adultery, he had engineered a murder, a bunch of terrible stuff had just happened. But in the psalm of repentance, he doesn't just say, boy, I really did something bad, but he also says that this sin problem goes all the way back to this very conception. In sin did my mother conceive me, that he was, his nature was sinful all the way back um, before he even did anything. His nature was sinful. Um, and then can I have Genesis 8.21? I think Justin had that. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Okay, and so this, this passage, going even further back in biblical history, this is right after the flood, Noah and his family have been graciously saved by God after God poured out judgment on an exceedingly wicked world. And they come off the ark and they're giving thanks to God and they offer a sacrifice to give thanks. And so that's where this pleasing aroma comes in, in this, in this verse. And God's response is this, again, this is a gracious promise that we're reading here that he says, I, I'm not going to curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And you read this, and you say, this, for one thing, this is a very odd bit of reasoning on first glance. It's like, you know what, these people are terrible, I'm never going to curse the ground again. <laughs> like, you guys, are, you guys are so bad, I'm not going to... So, but this is, when you think of it, this is just an amazing example of God's grace. Um, that he, he says... I recognize the deep-seatedness of sin, and in my grace, I'm going to, like, you don't deserve the long-suffering and the patience that I'm going to give you, but I'm recognizing that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Sin is universal, and yet in my grace, um, you know, we're not going to have a flood again, and he gives the rainbow as a sign of this covenant. Um, but these are just a couple examples out of many throughout Scripture that, that then reinforce what Paul writes in Romans 5, that one trespass from Adam has this incredible effect downstream on all of us. Now, thinking back, this is, just, this is just the sin of one man, though. So the theological term that we use from the fact that this then, that historical event then affects all of us is imputation. That Adam's sin has effects that are imputed. It's, a, it's sinful character is imputed to all of us. Imputation is like a legal accounting or, or, or an... Um, it's charged to our account. Um, that there is a sense in which the sin of Adam has this effect of bringing 
legal guilt and condemnation on us as sinners even before we've acted. Now, this, this is something that um, skeptics and more liberal theologians have tended to object to. They say, oh, imputation of sin, this seems really unfair, this is weird. Isn't this whole idea that this historical event can then affect all of us, isn't that just um, kind of an unseemly God holding us at fault for something that really isn't ours. Um, and, and there is, and the reason that that, if that resonates with you, I think there's a good reason for that because in God's system, the default, if we're looking at normal human inter interactions, we do not charge one person's sin to another. Quite to the contrary, God warns specifically against that. Um, in, uh, in Deuteronomy, 24, um, he instructs the Israelites as he's setting up the law system of Israel. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own son. Um, Ezekiel elaborates on this uh, in Ezekiel 18. Um, the soul who sins shall die. The soul shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. All that is, so that's, that's the default. So you look at scripture, and the default is not that, oh, everybody just you know, gets held group accountability for everything. Um, uh, that there is this individual responsibility, and this is the way our justice system, um, when it's working properly, like that is the normal way where it's set up. All that said, we should also note that there are lots of situations where the conduct of one person has broader effects. We regularly work with situations where there's shared or imputed responsibility in our own culture, in our own justice system. For example, in partnership arrangements, you go into a business partnership um, partners are then held liable for the debts and obligations and liabilities of their partners. Participants in a criminal conspiracy are held responsible for crimes committed by co-conspirators. Um, shift the situation a little bit in international relations, a single individual, a president, a prime minister, a, a sovereign, a king or queen, representing the sovereign authority of a country can enter into treaties or break them. Um, depending on the laws of that country, they might be able to make these agreements that make peace or war and have big effects on others. In scripture, the sins of a king have effects that are wide-reaching. Um, there are times when the, the nation has a responsibility um, for example, in the book of Joshua, chapter 7, you have the sin of Achan, who takes what he's not supposed to take um, from the, one of the cities in Canaan that they're con conquering. And these, these lands are so corrupt that they're not supposed to take anything from them. Um, when Achan does so, um, the sin becomes a national issue that has effects and repercussions on the whole nation of Israel and has to be dealt with on a national level. So, all this said, in a world full of imputed responsibility based on relationships, is it not 
presumptuous of us to fault God because the, the head and origin point of humanity then had effects for all of us. Now, scripture doesn't tell us the details of like, exactly what are all the mechanisms. And you know, I would love to be able to say, oh, these are, these are, this is like the very detailed explanation of exactly how sin is transmitted from Adam. We don't have like a mechanical account in scripture of how that works. Um, but we do have this communication from scripture that there is something unusual about Adam in particular. He had a unique covenantal headship role with respect to humanity. And the things that he have, we partake in. He was made in the image of God. Why are we in the image of God? We inherited that from Adam. Um, He has an authority relationship and a responsibility relationship and a kind of a, um, a, a trust relationship with taking care of the world around us. Why do we have responsibility for taking care of the world around us? Because we inherited that from Adam. There is so much about our human nature that as we think about what makes us human, you look back and it's like, that all goes back to this historical moment. And unfortunately for us, so too does the sin nature that Adam entered into and partook of. Um, and so as uh, the 17th century Reformed theologian uh, Petrus von Maastricht had several reasons that he said, like, well, here are a few things to think about. So one is, uh, when we think about the effects of Adam's sin on all of us, one is we can't inherit a better nature than that of Adam. Like we partake of the good, we partake of the made in the image of God with responsibilities and authority. And with that, though, we've also um, obtained sin. And along with all of this bad news, there is actually a good news side of this. If we think about imputed sin, and if we want to object to that, the thing we have to think about, though, is that we actually rely on imputation for our salvation, too. If we were to talk about fairness and justice, and it was actually all just an individual. We were each an individual Adam, born into the world, each with, with no sin nature. And we each just had to go through and make our own decision, and then we just fall into sin. If, the, if imputation was not part of God's system of justice, on what legal basis then could he then have his son come and bear the sins of others and then save us by means of imputation. So this is essential to what I put in the outline as the structure of God's justice, that if we are going to object to the fairness of, oh boy, like how can God allow us to inherit sin nature from Adam? Like that's just unfair. Well, it's also unfair for God to save us. So this is, I think, um, the, a really important uh, symmetry in the way that God constructed this, constructed justice. As in the first Adam, all die, so in the second Adam, all are made alive. Um, it's in this way that Jesus himself can take upon himself our griefs and our sorrows 
that he can bear this chastisement that brings us peace. This is in Isaiah 53. So the, the idea of imputation is also deeply intertwined with the idea of um, also of our salvation. It's, uh, it's essential to that. And um, we can actually see see this. Uh, there's so many places we could look. We could, we could do a deep dive in Isaiah 53. We could also do a deep dive in Leviticus 16, which is the story of the Day of Atonement and the, um, the whole sacrificial system that foreshadows the work that Christ would do in an ultimate sense. But even in, this, in the Day of Atonement, the, uh, the idea of imputation, that someone can bear responsibility, and that responsibility can then be transferred for sins of others, is there as the priest uh, offering sacrifices puts his hands on uh, the head of the goat who is going to be sacrificed and confesses over it the sins of the nation of Israel. And the sin is then transferred onto this goat who is then going to bear it off uh, into the wilderness. Um, and all of this shows that it makes total sense in the uh, structure of God's justice um, for, for Christ to be able to bear our sins. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake he made him sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, lots more that could be said about imputation, but I, that's, uh, we're going to have to pause there. Um, if there are any burning questions on that now, happy to pause for, for that. Um, but we'll, and if not, we'll come back for uh, if there are any other questions um, at the end. So feel free to bring them up. Um, but in the interest of time, want to talk briefly about now the universal reach of sin. So already kind of conveyed here in the idea that this historical um, event then affects all of humanity, um, which, okay, where does Satan fit in this? Evan brought this up. Um, so normally we don't, the reason that's, uh, if you look at systematic theology, um, so Satan rebels against God first. Um, to the extent that we're looking at how this affects all of humanity, it doesn't, it's not that the sin flows from Satan. So that's why we tend to not think of that as original sin. But this is, you might think of this as um, Satan's plan to corrupt all of humanity, which he is not omniscient. He does not know everything. What he does not know is that in the structure of God's justice, the, the way of salvation is also made possible through imputation. So what he thought was, aha, I have subverted God's plan. Um, as C.S. Lewis would put it in his great analogy, um, he did not know the deep magic uh, that is there in the background. Um, the, but the universal reach of sin. So, okay, so it does reach all of us. And this, this also um, is something that is contrary to what a lot of contemporary um, sort of pop psychology, pop anthropology. Um, you did man on the street interviews. What do you think about human nature? Um, yeah, just depends on, you know, if you're more of a glass half full, 
glass half empty kind of guy. Glass half empty is like, yeah, most people are pretty bad. Glass half full is like, well, most people are pretty good, but you know, they, they do some bad stuff and there are some bad people. Um, and I think the tendency is um, for a very long time to say that, you know, okay, there are really good people, like maybe like Mother Teresa devotes her whole life selflessly serving others. And then there are really bad people and there's Adolf Hitler, you know? And like you have this sort of dichotomy and, um, and if you're a glass half full kind of guy, you might say, well, I'm pretty good. You know, I didn't do anything like Hitler. Um, and so, you know, maybe human nature is basically good. Maybe if anybody ever saw the classic movie, um, Boys Town, Spencer Tracy as this kindly Catholic priest who starts an orphanage for boys. He's like, I've never met a truly bad boy. They're all just missing. It's a really wonderful movie, but the very bad theology <laughs> point right here. It's like, all boys are ultimately good if you can just find the way to reach them. Um, and uh, this is wrong at two levels. First, it ignores the universality of sin, which is what we want to talk about briefly right now, the universal reach of sin. And second, it ignores um, the depth of sin in, the in, in each individual person, which theologians would talk about under the heading of um, total depravity, which we'll turn to in just a moment. Um, but quickly, universal reach of sin. Um, back to Romans, this time chapter 3, uh, Paul is emphatic. All human beings are sinners. Um, he points to many scriptures uh, from the Hebrew Bible um, that he just puts together in this, this wonderful, very brief and high-impact section. Um, so I'm just going to read a little bit of this um, from Romans chapter 3, starting uh, start in the middle of verse 9. For we, are, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written... That none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I, the indictment is sweeping. No one understands. No one. All have turned aside. And again, this is not isolated. I mean, this is not even. I mean, Paul is then looking at the Hebrew scriptures. There, you could multiply this uh, endlessly. You, I have a bunch of uh, citations here that we're not going to vi revisit all of these um, on the handout. But you could go on for quite some time seeing from scripture the universal reach of sin. Um, but in the interest of time, I want to uh, bring in also now the concept of total depravity. So it reaches, uh, it reaches everyone. Um, but to what extent does it reach people? And some people would say, well, you know, maybe, so the kind of a Greek idea was, well, maybe my passions are bad, like I have bad inclinations, but my mind is good, 
And if I can just have my, my passions, my kind of animal instincts subservient to my mind, well then, all that is fine. Scripture doesn't permit us to be so optimistic as that. Um, this, that scripture says that sin affects us in all regards. Its effects are everywhere. And that is what theologically we call total depravity. Now, one misunderstanding, a common misunderstanding of total depravity, which I actually have this point B, but I just want to mention this now, um, is that total depravity must mean maximal depravity, that like you are as bad as you can possibly be. And then people look around and it's like, oh, I mean, I see a difference between, you know, Hitler and Mother Teresa and uh, like that can't possibly be the case. Well, total depravity is not maximal depravity. In God's grace, there is still the image of God um, and people, it's possible to fall into greater or lesser extents of the kind of working out of sin. It's possible, uh, I mean, like the conscience is corrupted. We know this from scripture, but it's possible for the conscience to then be seared with a hot iron which is a whole nother level. Um, so you, you have the idea that there are, there are um, people can engage in different levels of depravity. But the idea that depravity is total is that it reaches every aspect of our character. Now this is where uh, one of the things that historically in church history, this was, this was controversial, um, so in the first few centuries um, after, after Christ, you had some controversies come up, a lot associated, especially with a guy named Pelagius, um, who said that, you know, he objected to this idea that the historical sin of Adam could affect all of humanity. And so he said, instead, what Adam did was establish a pattern, which is true. But he said it was only a pattern. There is no connection here. It's just the historical thing was a pattern, and unfortunately we all tend to follow it. But if we used our willpower correctly, we could choose to do what is right and good. And the most important thing to do is to choose to follow Jesus, who is the ultimate goodness, and so he is the good pattern. So don't follow the bad pattern of Adam. Follow the good pattern of Jesus. Use your willpower to choose Jesus, and then you can be a good person. Um, is, I, that's kind of the essence of where Pelagius's ideas were going. And um, his great opponent was Augustine, who said, no, this, that's not what scripture teaches. Scripture doesn't just say it's a pattern, you know, Obviously, he's like, read Romans. It's not just a pattern. It is something that actually affects all of us. We're born in sin, and we don't have the willpower to just, like, oh, choose well. Choose not to sin. In fact, choose to follow Jesus because he's good. Now, Pelagius would say, I I'm not totally negating grace. You need grace because grace is what's going to help you do what's right. But I don't want grace to ever... Uh, override your willpower because that would mean that it's something less than you doing it. So, um, so grace is sort of like it's like a little bit of caffeine that like you wake up in the morning and then you have your coffee, and like maybe that helps you 
uh, you know, get going, but like, grace is sort of like your caffeine. It like superpowers your good choices, which you could do on your own. And in fact, believe it or not, like if you ran out of coffee tomorrow, yeah, you could still function if you had to, right? So, um, yes, it's David. It's interesting the Pelagian controversy yeah. really turned on just one phrase by Augustine. Yeah. It was that Augustine's phrase was, uh, grant what thou commandest and command what thou wilt. So yes. in other words, the whole idea is, Lord, you command whatever you want, just yes. grant me the grace to do and obey. Yeah. And Pelagius' idea was is that God would never command anything that human nature could not obtain by itself. Absolutely. And so it's just interesting to yeah. see the two different perspectives. Yes. And we still see a lot of today now with, right. you know, continue still to this day. So yeah. Yeah. I, no, that's, that's completely right. A great point. Um, so, yeah, this continues on, which is the, the reason for spending so much time on this, uh, this controversy from um, fourth century, that this is really an idea that has remained very powerful and influential to this day, that we are capable of doing good. This is, sorry to Father Flanagan for those who like the Boys Town movie, but, um, you know, it's a rather Pelagian idea that, like, I've never met a bad boy. You can always choose to do good. Um, but scripture does not present it that way, that we are, in fact, so caught up in sin that the Apostle Paul writes that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And what we need is the grace of God to make us alive, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. So um, this is really the, the hope of the gospel and this misunderstanding of, of total depravity is, um, is really quite destructive of that. In fact, not having a full uh, uh, respect for the idea of total depravity um, actually leads then towards kind of works righteousness approach. That then you're thinking that I'm not, I don't need the grace of God to do what's good. I can do it myself. I just need to choose what's right. I need to exercise my willpower. And then instead of being freed by grace to be alive to God, you are instead always in captivity to sin and you're even if you're trying to do what's good without the power of the Holy Spirit without the regeneration that is only a gift of God will be striving in vain so again the flip side of these of the very bad news is good news so we've seen this each step of the way that the the uh, extent of sin, it, it's imputed to all of us, but thanks to that, we can also have imputed righteousness through Christ. It reaches everyone, it's universal, but flip side of that, the salvation that Christ provides is more than sufficient for everyone. It's total, sin affects us in every aspect of our character, our being, our nature. But by recognizing that, we realize 
that we can rely on Christ for every aspect. So this, this really is the grace greater than our sin, as, as the old hymn says, that uh, the second Adam was fully man, but he did not partake in the sin of, uh, of Adam. He was sinless, and he was tempted in all ways as we are. He knows what we experience in all ways. Then he tracked the first Adam, except he remained without sin. And so while in the first Adam, we have imputed sin. In the second Adam, in Jesus, we have imputed righteousness. And by the grace of God, he provides us with life and with life abundantly. So lots of good news in this. Um, Also, lots of stuff that we talked about here. I mean, I feel like so many things in this class. We could have a whole semester long on pretty much all of these topics. Um, And uh, so any questions, encouraging comments, thoughts uh, from this? Open to that. Zach? Yeah. If we only think about sin as merely a pattern like Pelagius, what, what goes wrong outside of just thinking of it? Yeah. Well, so if we are, think- so if we are viewing sin um, as simply a pattern, we're almost back to this, I, back to the idea of, you know, we're each little atoms, we each have the, we're writing on a blank slate. Um, and the tendency then, I think, one, is we end up trusting in ourselves. If we are really capable of choosing what's right, and we're just looking like, ah, there's examples. Do I want to be more like, uh, more like Adam or more like Jesus? Or my mom, before she was a believer, she uh, was exploring New Age spirituality, and she He's like, well, you know, there are different gurus. Who do I want to choose as kind of my mentor model that I want to follow? Um, and she had grown up Catholic, and her, so she's like, well, Jesus, he's a good, he's kind of one guru. Um, but then there are some others, and I'll just see which I want to follow. But in a way, this all, that all fits with this Pelagian idea. It's our choice. We're looking at patterns. Nothing is deep-seated. Nothing's inherently wrong with us. We don't have something that needs fixed. And it's only by really recognizing the extent of sin and its deep-seatedness and its deep-rootedness that we can realize we can't just fix ourselves by picking the right pattern. Um, And certainly it's not a multiple choice of like, ah, yes, who do I I follow? Um, Which, you know, praise the Lord, my mom did discover uh, in a Bible study, um, and this was you know, before I was, was born, I was blessed to be raised by believing parents, but she realized, wow. Uh, and her, her prayer then after reading some in John, it's like, wow, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. She prayed, Jesus, I want you to be my guru. That was her initial prayer, and then she realized, <laughs> you know, went from there. Um, but um, yeah, so the, so it's, uh, I think, if we're going to then cast ourselves wholly on the mercy of Jesus. This isn't just intellectual. 
This is where are you looking for your salvation? Where are you looking for your hope? Um, Micah, and then Sarah. Um, well, so just to kind of go along with that, I think it's really easy for Christians to kind of fall into that thinking, yeah. right? Like, oh, well, Jesus saved me, and then like kind of becomes this moral improvement project, like yes. after the cross. Mm-hmm. I think that's just intuitively how we think, yeah. right? And that's just not how it works. Like, yeah. You can't sanctify yourself any more than you can originally save yourself. Christ's mercy and grace is what changes you today, just like he brought you to himself at the very beginning. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's the and I think this is the what was so tempting about kind of the Pelagian approach, right? It's very easy for you know, like Pelagius himself gets into this by thinking um, that he's very passionate about raising moral standards in among kind of different communities in the Roman Empire. He said, "Wow, you know, we really are slacking in our in our moral standards." Um, which, I mean, you read about it, like, yeah, that's certainly true. And, um, and Christians who are actual believers are not perfect, and there are places to call for repentance and for, um, for change. But it's the essential thing is that it's never just, it's never looking to ourselves. And once we do that, we're in, we're in trouble. Right, Sarah, and then David. Um, can you just clarify with the Pelagian heresy that you would have thought that there were some people that could go through life sinless and then the atonement of Jesus like only applied to sinners and wouldn't have, is that oh, an yeah, I, was, I was thinking about that or? In theory, yes. He would okay. say, it's like, in theory, it is totally possible for someone to go through life sinless. Okay. You could perfect yourself. Um, now, this was something where, you know, the Pelagian would, would hedge on this, like, yeah, well, people always end up following the pattern of, of the first Adam, so they would, they would try to reconcile it with scripture, and they'd say, sure, nobody actually did it. But in, then the question is, like, why? Yes. Why are they, well, it's because it's deep-seated, right? Yeah. Um, but, they, but it was always possible that you could, you know, theoretically reform yourself without even looking to Jesus. And then, and then, so his, his salvation was not only not by grace, but it was also not necessarily through Christ alone. Is the logical consequence of where he was going. And he would hedge on this to try to avoid getting condemned as a heretic, but he was condemned as a heretic. Um, so, yeah. So uh, the whole Pelagian controversy and now how we see it with some Pelagianism today mm-hmm. is yeah. very uh, insidious because it reorients our entire theology Mm-hmm. in very small ways, but mm-hmm. they lead us way off course. Mm-hmm. And you think about it in your evangelism. So if you don't have a clear understanding that what you're dealing with when you witness to an unregenerate person is that they're, they are, the picture is of a graveyard, not of a sick hospital bed. That the person isn't just sick and has a divine spark in them where they don't need God to completely raise them from the dead. Mm-hmm. They just need a little help. See that? If you, if you, if you don't have that clarity in your mm-hmm. evangelism, you're going to really fall off track in terms of how they understand the gospel and what they're really being saved from. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the picture is, I just want to leave you, when you evangelize, they need a yeah. resurrection. There's, there's a grave site that you're attending. Yeah. And it's a real miraculous thing that God is doing to resurrect them. And right. what is the result of that? Who gets the glory? God, right? Yes. It's not me and God. Because the only yeah. thing separating me, if I decide to choose Christ, 
this minor decision. Right. And why did somebody not go to heaven? Because they didn't choose. Right. And so there's that's hopefully some clear parallel. Yeah. And uh, also another practical consequence of this, it really goes to how you think about the role of the church and how evangelism functions, where if your theology is that you're just trying to get people to, you know, they're basically good and they could make the right choices and maybe sometimes they just need a little help. Um, the idea that maybe then you just like take some psychological cues, like how do you structure your, um, your service to like draw people in and sort of an entertainment yeah. gospel. Um, if you can make, make good news kind of fun and easy and make it a little easier to make the right choices, um, then maybe that's the way you, you do it. And you can see a lot of this in America today um, in the way that uh, you know, entertainment is approached to, you know, is like merged Christian ministry. Um, Russell, and then Madeline, and then we'll, yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, wow, so lots to say there. Um, but um, yeah, so if you view, so I mean, it also deeply affects, like, how do you view children? Are they, like, they're basically good, or, you know, maybe blank slates, um, they're with no presets, and you just have to make it easy for them to make the right choices? you're going to be quickly disappointed and frustrated as a parent. Um, the idea that, yes, they are broken from the get-go and they, they need grace. They need the grace of Christ as much as anyone else uh, is, is really essential and you know, it will have very different effects for, for parenting based on that. And we could talk about this for a long time, but yeah, very, very important. And Madeline, uh, take this, and then I'll be the last one, yeah. Um, so going back to the idea of like imputed guilt, where they see that in our world, yeah. it seems like it all boils down to like human limitations and being able to identify the guilty party, yeah. where it just makes more sense to, with the broader punishment, to um, mm-hmm. ensure that the wrong is addressed, yeah. which God doesn't have those human limitations. Right. No, so this is, this is great. I think, so the first one, it seems like, yeah, it's definitely not a problem of like, oh, I can't figure out who the guilty party is. And you might think of like a lot of conspiracy law is more like this, that like, oh, you have all these criminal conspiracy, folks involved in a criminal conspiracy, and we'll just hold them all responsible. It's hard to like parcel it all out. That, that definitely is not a problem for God. He knows who's done each thing. I think it is much closer to something that a collective... Um, responsibility, uh, not so much about, I think, the ins- incentivizing people to like, protect themselves from it, because again, this, that isn't really what's going on here, but more in the sense of, more think of, I think, international relations in some ways is, nothing is a perfect analogy, and this is going to break down, but there are some ways in which that's an interesting analogy where we think of each person as a participant in this polity, and what deals they make, you know, uh, 
treaties or something, everybody ends up implicated and they might involve in a war and things like that. Um, we are, so Adam is kind of a covenant head. He's, there's a certain sovereign character here. There's a, so I think the analogy is maybe closer to that in the current world. Um, and these will break down all at some point, but I would be, uh, say there's, there's something to that, that, that could be unpacked, but again, um, happy to talk about details because there are ways in that, which they'll break down. So there's lots of materials here. We could keep going for a while, but we need to wrap up and, um, I'm just going to pray briefly and then be dismissed. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your grace that is greater than our sin. And I pray that you would help us as we seek to, to understand your word and to live our lives in light of the grace that you provide. Uh, and I pray that that would be something that we are grateful for as we go out to worship you today. In Jesus' name.